everyone, welcome to another interview on my YouTube channel. Uh, today, I'm uh, just super excited to be joined by uh, Wallace Arthur, who is a, well, you can explain who you are. Uh, <laughs> who are you? What do you do? Okay, <laughs> okay Fraser. So, um, I'm uh, an emeritus professor of zoology at the National University of Ireland in Galway. Uh, I, I'm an evolutionary biologist by, by uh, specialization, and I've written about a dozen books, mostly about uh, evolutionary biology on planet Earth. Uh, but the most recent one, The Biological Universe, is, of course, about uh, the possibilities of evolution on exoplanets um, and possibilities of parallels with uh, evolution here on Earth. Uh, yeah, and and your I'll, I'll just sort of hold up your book here. So your most your most recent book, the biological universe, life in the Milky Way and beyond, and uh, and I just uh, I just finished it. I've been I've been reading it for the last couple of weeks, and uh, and I went very slowly through it um, because from that evolutionary perspective, it was like there's a ton of um, squishy life stuff that I hadn't been focused on and it was very useful to kind of go through it step by step and 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 just really understand how incredible and diverse life is here on on earth so so let's talk about that the first let's just talk about that background of, of yours about about life so you know as a uh, zoologist um, what what have you been focusing on for your career uh, well, I, I seem to be um, almost pathologically um, attracted towards interface areas mm -hmm. between different branches of science, which is probably what ultimately got me into astrobiology. Uh, but I guess I started off my career at the interface between uh, evolution and ecology. So the, the, the questions of how the environment molds uh, Darwinian selection, which in turn molds uh, the creatures that are evolving. And I, I went from there in a, in a, a complicated uh, pattern to a, a different interface area, which goes by the strange nickname of Evo Devo. Evo Devo. Uh, this is, <laughs> this is a, it's, it's almost universally known by this uh, nickname because its full name is evolutionary developmental biology, which is a bit of a mouthful. And so uh, this is about uh, the relationship between the short-term processes that biologists call development, for example, embryogenesis or, or in, in, in a, something like a butterfly metamorphosis, um, and then the long-term processes that we call evolution. And, and so, for example, uh, it's well known that human embryos go through a stage where they have gill clefts, uh, structures that look as if they should continue uh, as, as development progresses um, and, and form gills, but they don't. Um, and so uh, th this, uh, um, or, or not just this single observation, but observations of that kind, um, are among the strongest uh, forms of, ev of evidence for evolution uh, because, of course, they make no sense whatsoever uh, without it. Uh, 
Um, and it's interesting that Darwin in his um, uh, Origin of Species, when he talks about uh, comparative embryology among different animals, he actually says that even if he hadn't come up with natural selection and all the things that he's known best for, he would still have believed in evolution despite that, just because of uh, the, the information on, on comparative embryology. And, and with Evil Devil, we've, we've basically turned 19th century comparative embryology into something that's genetically based. I mean, evolutionary developmental biology started about 1980-ish. Uh, so it's only as a discipline about 40 years old. Right, right. As and as a scientific uh, endeavor, that's fairly that's fairly young. Um, yeah. Uh, so so then you know so I want to sort of break up our conversation in, into sort of three parts here to sort of match what I think is sort of the larger structures of the of the book as you as you wrote it. The first part is to is to sort of amaze us at the. I guess the diversity and capabilities of life to fill every single niche in a universe that is largely hostile to it. You talk about the just when you think about, you know, people always make this 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 claim that the universe is perfectly tuned for life, but it's sure not. There's so little of the universe that's actually good for life. It's really just this tiny little layer on the earth. Maybe if few dozen kilometers up, maybe five kilometers down and in very specific places. And yet life has has really expanded across the entire planet to fill every single niche. From a sort of evolutionary biology perspective, how, I guess, how extreme has life been able to get in conquering some of the nooks and crannies of our planet? Well, um, of course, the short answer is very extreme, <laughs> but I can probably do better than that. Um, so we do talk about um, uh, animals and, for that matter, other kinds of organisms that live under fairly normal circumstances on Earth as mesophiles, so they're attracted to middling kind of conditions. Uh, but we now know of lots and lots of different kinds of extremophiles, as they're called, uh, which are adapted to uh, what really seem to be crazy conditions. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and you and you cover and, some just intense creatures in this in the book. Yeah, they're crazy in every direction because they they can be very hot, very cold. Um, uh, they can survive incredible acidity or alkalinity. They can survive complete lack of light. Uh, the most famous creatures of this kind, at least in the animal world, are these tiny little creatures called tardigrades or water mm -hmm. bears who can be taken down to within a couple of degrees of absolute zero, minus 273 Celsius, uh, at which point, of course, they're in a state of suspended animation. Um, as indeed we would be at minus 270. Yeah, but they can come back uh, out of it again. <laughs> the difference is, yes, that we don't wake up again, and they do. Uh, and so they can ex they can survive extremes of temperature. Uh, and, and for me, one of the most fascinating things was when they were taken into space uh, on a Russian uh, mission uh, some years ago. And they had this very clever little bit of apparatus called a biopan where they were... They were able to expose the tardigrades to the outside 
to space itself, uh, not, not the way space dogs were, were uh, right, you know, right, costed right. inside the inside the, the capsule. Yeah, they pushed them out the and, airlock. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and, and they were fine. They, yeah. Well, they yeah. weren't all fine. To, 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 yeah. I mean, the story goes that they survived. Actually, not all of them survived, but plenty of them did survive. Uh, and so they can survive the vacuum of space as well as these uh, crazy temperatures. Um, now, of course, there's also microbes, and, 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 and maybe there's even more in, in the microbial world than in the animal world, that, uh, more species that can withstand extremes. And um, uh, what we call hyperthermophiles, the really, really thermophilic ones that, that, that like in, intense heat. Um, there are lots of those in the microbial world, both in, in the main division of that world that we call the bacteria, but also in the other division that we call the archaea. Um, and it's interesting because they're scattered around the microbial evolutionary tree. So they pop up here and there. And some of them pop up quite close to the, what we think of as the, if you like, the stem of the tree of life, quite close to the origin of life. And so that has kind of um, lent weight to the, the theory that possibly the origin of life on Earth uh, occurred at uh, deep ocean vents. Right. Instead of, instead of what Charles Darwin called uh, some warm little pond or uh, Haldane and Operin called the primordial soup. Uh, it's not conclusive, and we still don't actually know in which kind of habitat on Earth life arose, except that it was for sure aquatic. But whether it was hot or warm right. or cool, right. we're not sure yet. And you talk about this, this necessity for an anaerobic environment as one of the key requirements to get the process started, probably. That, that you know, that... that you have an anaerobic environment where where you can get the life started and then you can shift over to creatures that can handle large amounts of oxygen like the cyanobacteria that were generated the large amounts of oxygen yeah i mean it actually you raise an interesting question there which is whether life could originate in an atmosphere that already was full of oxygen mm -hmm. um, but that tends not to happen because planetary atmospheres uh, where there isn't life, uh, don't tend to have much oxygen. And the early Earth was no exception to that, appears to be general rule. Um, and so, yes, uh, in the early days of, of evolution on planet Earth, um, there was very little oxygen. And all the life forms that evolved in the early days uh, were therefore anaerobic life forms of one kind or another. And there were quite a lot of different kinds. And yes, the cyanobacteria were the, were the kind of transitional group, the group that uh, produced, um, probably were the single, single biggest contributor to what we call the great oxygenation event, which happened in Earth's atmosphere uh, roughly two to two and a half billion years ago. Um, interestingly, the cyanobacteria today are typically um, creatures with aerobic metabolism. But at the beginning, they must have been otherwise. And so they themselves must have gradually evolved in this respect. But in addition to what happened to, to them uh, in their own right, it's the fact that they changed the environment for everybody else right. that was evolving. That's yeah. really, really the, 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 big, the big thing about these, uh, yeah. these tiny creatures. And I wonder, I mean, 
Is that an arms race? Like, was that an inevitable outcome that some life form would figure out how to use oxygen in its metabolism or in which I guess is like sort of like a higher level of, of, of energy and then poison the entire planet hmm. as the outcome. Like, it seems like, like obviously now oxygen, the creatures on earth largely can handle oxygen and are more yeah. energetic than the anaerobic, you know, uh, life forms. My compost pile works better when I let some oxygen in than when it doesn't. Um, do you think that that kind of event was inevitable? Was a great oxidation event just, it had to happen and therefore should we see it elsewhere? I guess is where I'm getting at. Yeah. I think whether something had to happen or not depends very much on the amount of time available. And so one of the things that fascinates me having uh, read my way from a biology starting point into uh, planetary science, astronomy, astrobiology, is how uh, varied the lifespans of planets are because of how varied uh, the lifespans of their host stars are. And so um, it, it looks right now, uh, on the basis of what we know so far, that actually uh, around planets orbiting the, the biggest, hottest stars probably aren't going to evolve life in the first place, because they only last a few minutes. Right, they don't have time. Um, but if you take planets that have at least a, a, an Earth-like span of existence measured in billions of years rather than millions, or beyond that, like the, the planets that orbit red dwarfs, um, then I suspect that it is rather an inevitability. Now, of course, that's a personal view. What's inevitable is a, is a hard thing to call. Um, but one way of looking at it is in terms of what are the sources of energy for life forms? Uh, and I don't mean just on Earth, but on planetary surfaces in general. And in terms of planets in the habitable zones, then generally speaking, the most abundant form of energy is light, mm -hmm. sunlight. There is chemical energy, energy to be had. And of course, once there are other organisms, you can eat them, but ultimately they have to get their, their energy from, from somewhere. So life might well ordinarily start out in the form of some chemosynthesizing microbes, just making use of whatever chemical energy is at hand. But given the, the abundance, the superabundance, if you like, of, of sunlight, then I imagine that uh, in many biospheres on many planets, uh, forms would evolve somewhere in the tree of life that are able to harness this uh, incredible supply of, of light energy. Even then though, that, there's, there's kind of an interesting uh, distinction with regard to how you do that, because uh, there are, it's less well known, I think, that there are forms of photosynthesis that don't actually produce oxygen. So really, um, huh. yeah. Okay. Um, so we talk about oxygenic photosynthesis, the type that does produce oxygen, and anoxygenic photosynthesis, the type that doesn't. And 
in different groups of microbes. Uh, right now on Earth, you have some doing one and some doing the other. So the cyanobacteria are pretty well known as conducting the uh, oxygenic uh, form of photosynthesis. But then there are these fascinating sulfur bacteria which conduct the other kind of photosynthesis. And it's, it's really beautifully parallel in terms of the, the substances that are involved. So instead of H2O in uh, oxygenic uh, photosynthesis, where you end up producing O2, you use H2S instead, hydrogen sulfide. Mm -hmm. And then instead of producing oxygen, you produce sulfur. And so that kind of photosynthesis may also quite often evolve given the, the superabundance of light energy on planetary surfaces, but that's not going to do the same job for the rest of the biosphere as oxygenic photosynthesis is. And so the cyanobacteria really were key rather than other groups of microorganisms conducting different kinds of, of photosynthesis that didn't produce oxygen. Huh. So, so there is a, a, a non-oxygen producing method of, of, uh, you know, harnessing sunlight as your method, but you're not going to create the same kind of environment that is beneficial to other life forms. So I guess yeah. I, I kind of got to go back to my original question, which is, <laughs> you know, would that outcompete the oxygen producing ones? Or in the end, is some version of a cyanobacteria going to crack this problem and then flood the planet with oxygen like you know it's i don't know it's it you talk about like convergent evolution you talk about various ideas that have been that have been discovered multiple times by various species um and you think about things like and you talk about trees and how trees are one example of get tall, shade your neighbors, get the sun. But there's also different kinds of ferns and club mosses and things like this idea of getting tall, grabbing more sun has been thought of multiple times. And so you would expect to see anywhere you go, if the major source of energy is light, you're going to see trees. Now, they're not going to be trees as we necessarily understand them, but they're going to be performing the same function. And so based on on what we see of life doing here on Earth, broad strokes, what can we expect to see life doing on other worlds? Yeah, good question. Um, and of course, we have to remember that uh, there are probably very many other worlds. And so the answer to your question might differ between one of them and another. But well, I actually... I mean, I'm find... sorry, I just, I, just to, before, I just want to just sort of fine tune yeah, this question ahead. just before you took it. Like, like, I think the, the sense that I really got was that when astrobiologists look out into the universe, we have a sample set of one. We say we have only one example of a planet in this universe that has life. But, but that's not exactly true. We have, we have an example of life on Earth accomplishing the same outcome multiple times in the same conditions. And so literally, you have a, an Earth-sized world orbiting a sun-like star, and many life forms have figured out how to tree. And that feels like a hint at what the, what the rest of the universe might hold in store for us. Yes, yes. And uh, I, I, one feature of the book is that I, I 
try to uh, um, address a series of hypotheses and make them central in the, in the story that I tell. And one of those is called a parallel places hypothesis, as you will probably remember. Yep. Um, and um, for me, looking at, looking at uh, the, the uh, fascinating uh, array of exoplanets that we've, uh, we've discovered, as a biologist, and then concentrating on the ones that are, you know, rocky planets in the habitable zone, uh, forgetting about things like hot Jupiters, which don't look like they're, they're, they're good homes for life. Um, uh, but it seems to me that you don't have to make too many assumptions to, to rapidly get to a place where you think a lot of the environmental features are going to be the same. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if the environmental features are the same and we believe that Darwinian evolution is something that applies across the universe, wherever you find life, and I do firmly uh, personally believe that, then parallel natural selection operating on the basis of parallel environments is going to produce a parallel array of organisms. Now, not, of course, to the, to the, uh, the level of fine detail, where, you know, the intelligent life forms on other planets uh, look like us, but with pointy ears. Um, I'm thinking of my, my favorite uh, alien, Mr. Spock, of yeah, course. Sure. Um, but nevertheless, in terms of the broad brush uh, painting of the living world, as evolution does it on, on other planets, I strongly suspect it's going to take, uh, in most cases, shall we say, uh, rather similar paths uh, that life has taken on Earth. Uh, so you can start, for example, with gravity. Um, planets cannot escape having gravity. It's, it's just got to be there. It is there. It varies a little bit in the extent. But if you're a small rocky planet in a habitable zone, you're going to have gravity like Earth's, a bit, bit less, a bit more. If you're in the habitable zone, so there's liquid water there, and there's almost certainly a water cycle, a bit similar to Earth, because the temperature is not going to be absolutely constant. And so you're going to have some evaporation and condensation and so on. We haven't yet discovered a planet, uh, uh, talking now in terms of topography, we, we haven't yet discovered a planet that's like a, a spherical equivalent of a bowling green. So there's no topography. Right. So yeah, you always, talked about that. Yeah, yeah. There are always hills and mountains and, and, and valleys and plains. And so if you combine that with gravity and with a water cycle, that means you're going to have streams and rivers and lakes and oceans. It's kind of hard to get away from that. And if you have all those things, it means you have both terrestrial habitats and freshwater and marine habitats. And uh, if you're going to be a large organism, especially on land as opposed to in the ocean, then you actually need some form of support against gravity, which is why all the largest organisms on Earth, both plants and animals, have got things like wood or bones. So I don't know whether um, on some exoplanet somewhere in the habitable zone, we're going to get the evolution of wood or bones, but I think we're going to get the evolution of something that does the same job. And, and once again, you talk about life coming up with that solution multiple times that the insects have their exoskeletons trees have their trunks animals have bones uh and it, so time and time again you see the same versions of solutions being adapt being developed for the problem of gravity the problem of you live in liquid the problem of you've got a thick atmosphere etc 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 the problem of you need to get more sunlight than your neighbors yeah 
and 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 so again, I feel I feel like I really feel strongly that that almost everything that we need to know about what life can come up with in a physical universe is being demonstrated to us ad infinitum here on planet Earth. That co-virgent yeah. evolution tells us that that in fact we've seen it we've seen eyes come up 50 times here on earth therefore yeah. that we actually have 50 examples of eyes not one i love this view because it's the opposite of the pessimistic sample size of one view uh oh, wait for my some... pessimism we'll, we'll get deep into my pessimism oh, in a okay we'll get here. to your pessimism yeah but, but, but while we're with optimism let's yeah. stay optimistic for a yeah. bit uh, and, and if you go to the to the optimistic extreme, then what you can say is that uh, you have this incredibly um, uh, uh, complex tree of life on, on this planet, and it's got lots of growing tips, growing twigs, if you like, and in a way, each of those is making its way quasi-independently into the future and making its own decisions. It's only, of course, quasi because uh, everything's connected with everything else, but when you find the same things, the same solutions hit upon by lots of uh, different lineages, often separated by millions of years from each other, coming from very different directions and yet finding those same solutions, I think um, that's very telling about the way in which natural selection works and the way in which it can actually produce the same results, uh, regardless of whether uh, the starting material in terms of the particular lineage that it's operating on uh, is different. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in the, uh, I guess in this, in the middle part, so, we, so you set up this case for life and just like all the different diversity of life. And then in the second part of the book, you talk more about sort of extending these ideas and saying, okay, now let's take a look at how habitable the universe seems to be. Then again, you make the case that it seems like there's a lot of places that are great for life. Um, many other sun-like stars, many other planets, there's tons of planets, you sort of run through the Drake equation and, and you have a very rosy outlook on the number of places out there that probably have life. You estimate about a billion worlds um, could have microbial life. microbial life. Yeah, yeah, could have microbial life. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's of, a big difference, sorry. Oh, out of the 100 to 400 billion stars in the, in the Milky Way, you know, uh, I think that's, you know, I mean, it's all just guessing at this point. Um, but, you know, it, it, it seems like if life arises quickly and can exploit any environment, that almost feels like a vast underestimation. It may well be. And I actually adopt uh, the principle of trying to give conservative estimates when I, when I uh, approach the, the, the questions of the number of uh, instances of different kinds of life, because obviously you, you can, in astrobiology, you can rapidly get into what you might call unbridled speculation and run away with yourself and lots of crazy ideas. And especially if you're an optimist as I am about extraterrestrial life. Uh, so I think it's actually helpful um, to always take estimates at the lower bound of, of any brackets that you get. And I uh, personally would uh, think that there are probably more than uh, a billion uh, planets with microbial life 
in the galaxy. The interesting thing, you mentioned the Drake equation. The interesting to, thing to me, is, you know, coming into this as, as a biologist and coming into it a long time after uh, Frank Drake came up with this equation back in around about 1960, uh, well, two things really. One is that some of the parameters in the equation we now can estimate, as you know, quite well compared mm -hmm. with what could be done in 1960. So the probability of a planet, of, of planets in general uh, orbiting uh, a sun, well, it's probably nearly 100%. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the number of um, Earth-like uh, planets uh, per star, well, it may well be something like one in 100 it's probably not less than one in a thousand anyhow. I mean, orders of magnitude are all you can do here, but you know. Uh, and then the other side of the Drake equation is that if you as a biologist are interested in all sorts of life, not just intelligent life, then a lot of the, the hardest parameters just drop out of the equation because mm -hmm. they relate to the unknowns about things like how long intelligent life lasts before it destroys itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, with microbes, we know they've been around on Earth for 4 billion years. And so the, 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 the lifespan parameter is a lot easier to grapple with uh, than it is for intelligent life, where we really don't know whether once you get to the, the radio level of intelligence, what we know is that you last at least a century. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but it might not be much more than that. Uh, yeah. Um... I mean, again, it uh, seeing how quickly life found the way here on Earth, um, like it just seems like the second life could arrive on Earth, could begin happening on Earth, it did. And and so I think we are definitely back to a sample size of one in this situation, but yet it seems funny, weird that it started so quickly. And that feels like it's an indication at least that if life was able to start so quickly, then life should be starting quickly in other places as well. That it seems almost, I mean, I definitely don't want to say inevitable, but it really seems like it trends towards it happening rapidly. Therefore, it should be everywhere. I think I would agree with that. Okay. As long as we remember that when you say life happened, life began very quickly uh, after the, the Earth was born, uh, we need to remember that quickly, maybe within the first half billion years. Um, so, you know, the Earth is, is roughly 4.6 billion years old. Life is approximately 4 billion years old with the wobble of perhaps plus or minus 0.3 on that. Uh, and so, yes, it was very quickly in the grand scheme of things, but looked at another way, half a billion years is 500 million years, which is almost the entire history or known history of the animal kingdom. So we have to be a little bit careful when we say quickly. But I agree with you that in the grand scheme of things, that is quickly. And to me, that also uh, suggests the conclusion that perhaps it's close to the inevitable end of things rather than close to the vanishingly improbable end. Right. So, so you... But I mean, like you have, I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's whatever, half a billion years after the formation of the earth, but how much of the earth, how much of that early time of the earth, was it a ball of molten rock? How much of it was being, was it being constantly bombarded by planetesimals that were continuing to liquefy the surface and make it, so if you take that 500 million years, how much of that was 
just inhospitable by any measure? Probably less than half of it. Okay, great. So now we're down to 250 million years. You've got 250 yeah. million years, yeah. really, that life could exist. And even that was probably you got going and then you got hit by an asteroid and then you got going and you got hit by an asteroid. Like, you know, can we narrow it? So you, but you would comfortably say 250 million years of after the earth was habitable, life formed. And at the same time, aren't we still finding examples of older life? Like, do you think that if you could do a comprehensive search of, of every fossil on earth, could you get closer to that 250 million years? Probably via fossils, uh, no. Uh, but simply because when you're right back at the beginning of the evolution of life on Earth, and you're dealing with tiny protocellular creatures, don't even have uh, much of a, a cell wall, th those things are simply not going to fossilize. And so right. I actually, uh, I do suspect uh, that life originated much earlier than we have the earliest evidence for. Yeah. And so I, I, I think in a sense, this reinforces your point that it got going right. really quite soon after it could. Yeah. Um, I mean, it feels like I know in, in my reporting, they find another um, and I, I forget the name. I'm sure you know the names of them. In Australia, they find another example of a bacterial colony, you know, the limestone produced by a bacterial colony or, or whatever it is, right? Maybe stromatolites. Stromatolites, that's yeah. it, right? Yeah. yeah, they find stromatolites. They find evidence that that there was bacteria going, and it and it feels like it's sort of like it's approaching some asymptotic endpoint where you're like you keep finding life a little bit farther and a little bit farther. Anyway, so what I'm saying is it really does feel. I think we can narrow both sides of that that non lifetime and and really shrink it and shrink it and shrink it. So you in the book disagree with the rare earth hypothesis. So you say um, that, you know, well, uh, in rare earth, they say bacterial life is going to probably be everywhere. But complex life, that jump from single cellular to multicellular organisms is probably really likely as opposed to unlikely. Um, defend that. Okay. Yeah, I will. I, I'll take pleasure in defending it. I. I do strong, strongly disagree uh, with the rare earth hypothesis. I very much enjoyed reading the I rare love the earth book. Yeah, book. Uh, it's a great book, uh, but I happen to think they're 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 um, uh, what can I say? Wrong. Okay, <laughs> I think they're wrong. I think they're very wrong. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I um, I started reading that book, and I thought, given that they have. Um, complex life in the, in the, in the book's uh, subtitle, I thought, well, well, what on earth do they mean by complex life? They seem happy. They draw this very definite line between what they call simple life and complex life. Where do they draw the line? And, and, and what do they mean when they say complex life? Um, eventually, I found it, and they say animals and higher plants. Now, we've long since stopped thinking of life as a, a scala naturae, if you like, a kind of ladder of progress. And so what's a higher plant and what's a lower plant? I'm really not sure. I tried looking up various plant groups in the index before I then started through the book as itself. And neither the index nor the book told me anything about any plants except algae, which they deem to be lower plants. So um, 
let's let's since what they were saying was was a bit woolly in relation to the plant kingdom let's stick with animals where they were they were clear and they said okay we think animal life all animal life is complex life one, one assumes that means including sponges and jellyfish and flatworms and all these things that some people would call lower animals so okay they say um this kind of life is vanishingly rare but microbial life is very common um, there are several ways you can approach uh, a, a counter-argument, and I think the one I like the best is to think in terms of the relative lifespans on Earth of the microbial type of life and the animal type of life. And so microbial life has been here, as we've just been discussing, for at least four billion years, maybe, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, the time span for animal life has proved uh, a bit harder to pin down uh, because there was this enigmatic event that I'm sure you're aware of called the Cambrian explosion of animal life, mm -hmm. which took place uh, a little bit over uh, 500 million years ago or half a billion years ago. There were animals before that, but not very many different types. And there were some creatures, um, the so-called uh, Ediacaran uh, uh, biota, which nobody's quite sure even if they were animals or not. But uh, what we can say about animal life is that it's 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 definitely been on Earth for more than half a billion years and less than one billion years. Right. So uh, compared with um, microbial life, for example, bacteria, it's been around for maybe a quarter of that time or maybe only an eighth of that time. Now, if things go in parallel, uh, roughly speaking, on other planets, for example, we don't expect any evolutionary system anywhere to start off with multicells and then produce unicells from them. That just doesn't seem right. to make sense. Yeah. So it'll go the same way. Um, then it may take an equally long period of time before the unicells are equipped to build multicellular bodies. Uh, but unless the process is uh, sort of hopelessly slower than it was on Earth, then ballpark, what we might expect is if we take um, a thousand planets uh, that have got microbial life and they're at a whole different uh, range of, of stages in their evolutionary histories, maybe about a quarter of them, or if you're pessimistic, maybe about an eighth of them have got animals. So I don't really see why they're so pessimistic and want to draw such a clean line of separation between microbes, simple life on the one hand, and animals and other complex forms of life on the other. It, it feels to me like a no true Scotsman fallacy is the way I sort of describe it, which is like you see an ant colony where you've got a million ants working together in a very complicated pattern. And you say, well, they're just ants that's not intelligent behavior, but they're actually doing something incredibly intelligent there. It's like a single organism that is that is keeping its eye on every food source in an entire region and 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 bringing it back to the nest and and in a way that no one organism could ever do. Um, you look at uh, various kinds of fungi or um, other kinds of, uh, you know, 
bacterial mats that are working in ways, slime molds. Like there are, there are ways that, that not that single cellular organisms can work together in ways that are surprising. And I would, I would anticipate that, that as we look out, you know, going back to that idea of like trees are going to tree that I think you're going to find that life is going to figure out how to accomplish the, the more complicated behavior through various mechanisms. And the one that we seem to have here on earth is, is animals. But I, but that's where I don't think we necessarily need to describe it as an animal in the same way. I, am I making any sense? Do you know what I'm talking? Yes, you're, you're, you're making lots of sense okay. as usual. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So it's just uh, like, like, it feels to me like you kind of like, you see, you look at it and you say, but that's, you know, there's no, there's nothing interesting happening on that world because it never figured out animals. And yet you see these, you know, bacteria have clumped together into a floating object and they are somehow flying through the atmosphere and harvesting the sunlight better than anything else. You know, imagine if a blob of cyanobacteria lifted out of the ocean and floated around in the atmosphere. That would be interesting. And yet it, you don't have to have multicellular organism to do it. And so it's kind of like, you know, it's that idea. Again, life finds a way. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And I think for us to say, well, that's, that's single, you know, single cellular, sure, that's common. Animals, rare. Therefore, complicated life rare. And I think that is a mistake to make yes, that well, distinction. I, I, I completely agree with you. And um, I think it's also a mistake uh, to draw uh, a, a straightforward line between what we think of as unicellular life forms and multicellular ones. Um, because uh, th th there's lots of um, fuzziness at that, at that border. One of the most fascinating things about evolution on planet Earth, uh, and one of the things that I think it's hardest to generalize about when you think about um, what's happening on, on exoplanets uh, elsewhere, is this, this strange fact that on Earth, uh, we seemed to need to make, in evolutionary terms, a more complicated cell, the, the, the so-called eukaryotic cell, before we could make things like uh, animals and plants and fungi, the, the, the things that have big uh, multicellular bodies. Um, whether that's true elsewhere is, is an open question, I think. But even here on Earth, if you take the simpler cells, the prokaryotic cells of uh, creatures like bacteria and, and archaea, um, then uh, if, you, if you scan across those two realms, the bacterial and the archaeal realms, with an eye particularly on questions about multicellularity, mm -hmm. what you find is that there are all sorts of exceptions to the, the sort of rule, if you can even call it that, that prokaryotic means unicellular. And so, uh, well, to take the cyanobacteria, they of course build these enormous structures called stromatolites, which right. are uh, in some cases more than a meter at all. They're making they're a just, tree. Layers. Well, <laughs> uh, I suppose it's a it's a, it's a, so, sort of a mutant tree, you could say. Yeah. Right. Um, it, it layers and layers of these of these cells, 
Um, and that uh, is a kind of a big body in itself, if you want to look at it in that way. There's also a group, perhaps less well-known, called the mixobacteria, which makes strange structures that also, in fact, they look even more like little trees. In fact, if you Google um, body form in, in mixobacteria, um, then you find some beautiful looking structures. They almost conjure up fractals and, and all sorts of uh, patterns in your mind. And uh, they, they clearly make structures which, are, which defy the, the neat label unicellular. Right. And so I think, yeah, to, to think of this, this tremendously uh, a firm line between simple and unicellular and prokaryotic on the one hand, and then the, all the complex things on the other hand, is a mistake. And yeah. I, I, I firmly believe uh, that the authors of Rare Earth made that mistake. And, and I, I do argue quite strongly against yeah. that. In, in All right. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the rest of the book, uh, the sort of the final part of the book is you talk about the search and the techniques and the technologies to be able to look for this kind of life and how difficult it's actually going to be. And, you know, uh, you know, my audience is very familiar. This is, you know, we talk about this quite a bit. So I'll shorten this. Now, do you feel like you've been set yeah. up sort of during this conversation? You feel like you've been strong manned enough? Because now I want to talk about why, and and I guess I sort of I feel like I need to sort of set this up a little bit, which is like life. By all reckoning, life should be everywhere, and and I think that I think we can make that. We don't need to make that distinguishing point between single cellular life and and multicellular life. There should just be life in many, many places. And, and, you know, we haven't even talked about the places that are not Earth-like, you know, the, the water worlds, ocean worlds, that there could be chemical sure. synthesis under ice, etc. Um, and, and we didn't, we haven't talked about panspermia and the idea that life could be getting from world to world. But, but just sort of this, you know, as Enrico Fermi said, you know, life should be everywhere. So where is it? Um, how do you square that circle where on the one hand every part of your research tells you that life is everywhere and yet to the best of our ability we don't find it and and i you know i don't i, I want to sort of short the shorten the just just the conversation about the fact that we haven't really looked because it's not about like all i need to do to find life here on earth is to just take a glass dip it into any water anywhere and i'll find life so it's not about life it's not me finding life in every nook and cranny of planet earth it's about life finding its way to every single nook and cranny of the milky way and that's not what we see why not sure <laughs> well um i think in relation to the fermi paradox for me, the huge difference is between uh, the commonness of life in general, or at least what I uh, would imagine is the commonness of, of life in general, and the relative rarity of intelligent life. And this goes hand in hand with how we detect life. So uh, in relation to the Fermi paradox, you can think in terms of uh, receipt of mess radio messages or uh, replies to our radio messages, or you can think of in incoming spacecraft, etc. Yeah. Et but uh, if you take an evolutionary process, 
that hasn't yet uh, produced intelligent life. For example, if you just think of Earth, and you don't have to think of Earth a long time ago, you can think of Earth uh, simply in Darwin's day, less than two centuries ago, when there were no radio transmissions, there was uh, uh, not even a, a hint of a spacecraft. Um, there was no way we could communicate uh, with anybody out there. So if you take Earth uh, any time from 4.6 billion years in the past up to, let's say, 1859, the year of publication of The Origin of Species, that's pretty much all of your 4.6 billion years right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's not much, not much uh, after that. Um, we as a planet would have been entirely invisible to uh, aliens who are listening for uh, radio broadcasts from us or waiting for visits uh, from spacecrafts, uh, spacecraft that have been sent from, from Earth. Um, so if you take planets uh, that have an evolutionary process that works at the same ballpark speed as ours does, and of course there's another if right there, but supposing that's the case, and you take planets that are up to about four and a half billion years old, then those are all going to be silent from the perspective of the Fermi paradox. Now, then the difficult thing is, I mean, it's easy to look into the evolutionary past, and it's a lot harder to look into the evolutionary future. And what we don't know is how long uh, we, as a, a species who describe ourselves as intelligent, some some ways merited and some ways not. Um, how long were we going to last as a civilization that broadcasts radio waves and can construct spacecraft? Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, you can construct a reasonable hypothesis that says we'll be gone within a millennium for various reasons, mm -hmm. uh, planetary destruction, nuclear war, you name it. Or you can say, well, actually, we're pretty good survival machines with all our technology and so on. We seem to be in the middle of a pandemic and kind of surviving it for the most part. Um, and uh, maybe instead of lasting for a millennium, we'll last for a million years. And we have no idea uh, which of those is true or whether it could even be a billion years, though right. no species has ever lasted for a billion years. So that seems unlikely. Right, right. Um, so uh, if uh, intelligent life forms typically don't last very long and are, if you like, a victim of their own technology, uh, then at any one time, like the present, the number of them existing in the Milky Way might be very small. Right. And I think right. that that might be a big part of the answer to the Fermi par paradox. It's not a particularly... Uh, we're back to optimism versus pessimism here. It's not a particularly optimistic one, right? But yeah. I think there might be some truth in it. Well, I think uh, you know, and where we stand currently as humanity, and, and sort of the rise of of three D printing and spacefaringness, I would say we are within a hundred years of being able to create self replicating robot probes. We send a spacecraft to an asteroid; it dismantles the asteroid, builds a copy of itself, and and then sends one to another asteroid and then they build more of these things. I would say we're a thousand years, within a thousand years of being able to have these robot factories start going off to other star systems, conservatively. You know, if you just take the energy, the doubling of energy at the rate that it is, and I think the prediction is about 700 
in about 700 years, it'll be relatively inexpensive for us to afford to send spacecraft to other star systems. So in that thousand year window that you gave us, we should be able to, to start the germ, start seeding the entire Milky Way with literally self-replicating robot probes that will go to every single star system in the entire Milky Way in a, in a few million years. And, and the fact that, that intelligent civilizations could have arisen in the Milky Way billions of years before even the Earth formed, we would anticipate that somewhere, someone did that anywhere, ever. And so I sort of back to that, back to that analogy. And this is the part that for me just feels so where I just, you know, on, I, I'm so enthusiastic about the possibilities for life everywhere. And yet I go, but yet as we think about what the future holds for us, why have we, why, apart from, I guess, a newly discovered monolith in Utah, I don't know if you've heard about this. Someone no? put some art, pro, some art installation in Utah, pretty much right where they filmed 2001. So there's actually a monolith. Uh, the obelisk, Utah. right. Yeah, 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 right. yeah. You know, why are there not monoliths all over the solar system as evidence that of the past alien intelligences that that went through all that process, got the life, got complicated, got technology, and and spread that stuff around. We, to the best of our ability, the best that we have explored, we haven't found it a single time. And so I just, for me, and you know, my audience is very familiar with this. I just, it just drives me bananas <laughs> <laughs> because life should well, be everywhere, and yet. <laughs> And yet we see no evidence whatsoever of it making its way to us. And, and that's the thing. And, and the analogy that I always use is you have a sandwich, you, you take a drop of mold, you put it anywhere on the sandwich, you come back a week later and the whole sandwich is mold. And you didn't, didn't, doesn't matter where it started, wherever you look, you've got mold. And yeah, and, that's for sure. <laughs> and, 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 and that's our future. Well, for the first time, Fraser, uh, in this interview, you've said something that I don't agree with. So that's good because it's always very healthy to disagree. Yeah. Um, so uh, I go with you part of the way, but I, but I, uh, we part company. Uh, and, and, and let me tell you where. So with regard to the uh, robotic spacecraft uh, out there in the asteroid belt doing whatever they're doing, I have no real problem with that. Uh, I think uh, even the time scale that you suggest for it may be absolutely spot on. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I go with you that far. I think um, where we part company is in relation to what happens between solar systems or between if, if, if we have this odd uh, question, does solar system just mean our system or do we do we talk about other solar systems or should we call them planetary systems but whatever let's call them planetary systems so um in terms of planetary systems in my opinion uh there's a reasonable chance that intelligent uh life forms which get to the stage of a spacefaring technology may be somewhat more restricted than you're suggesting to their own system right 
Um, That's sad. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by the plans of, of breakthrough Starshot uh, to send these uh, little uh, nanocraft uh, to um, uh, Proxima B. Uh, but uh, in terms of normal size spacecraft, uh, trying to actually get them to go to another planetary system, as opposed to going to the farther reaches of your own system, in our case, like New Horizons, uh, getting to Pluto, for example, um, I'm not so sure that I buy the ease of that kind of right. travel. Right. Um, even with nanocraft, uh, the idea is, of course, that it would take decades, and that's uh, traveling at a, a fair fraction of the speed of light, which is way, way, way beyond what right. we can achieve now. Um, and ultimately, you get to Einstein's speed limit, even if you do right. increase your, your technology. So I think there's a, a concern there. You did mention Oumuamua in your book. Um, yeah. So, you know, you're, I mean, and that's the counter I always have is, you know, literally rocks have figured this out. Well, Oumuamua is probably the most uh, fascinating uh, visitor we have ever had. I just yeah. think Oumuamua is fascinating. Um, uh, it, it just seems so bizarre that we have an asteroid belt and a Kuiper belt and they're full of objects of all kinds of weird shapes like mutant potatoes or whatever. Uh, they're all rather irregular but almost none of them are long and thin. And so here comes our <laughs> yeah, yeah. interstellar visitor. And it's about 10 times as long as it is wide. And that's just very, very weird. It really is. Um, uh, but, what, but what a wonderful discovery that the first interstellar object that we're able to find is has such a bizarre feature and just you know, leads to all kinds of other really interesting research into what could have caused that. And I've heard some really great ideas about about what could lead to it having that kind of a structure. But that's a whole other that's a whole other conversation. Well, I you know, I think um, I think we can sort of wrap up the, the conversation at, at this point. Uh, you know, I wasn't uh, it wasn't my I knew I couldn't convince you, but I wanted <laughs> to, uh, you know, I wanted to at least uh, bring you partway into the uh, into the deep uh, unease and existential, uh, you know, concern that I have. So, uh, um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, the book is the biological universe. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, especially for, for getting an astrobiology, essentially an astrobiologist telling you everything you need to know about life. And that part was was very useful to me, and I really enjoyed it. If people want to find out more about what you're working on, um, where can they go? Where can they find you? Uh, well, they could go to my page on Amazon. They could go to my Wikipedia page, or they could go to my university website. But I have to tell you that it's slightly out of date. <laughs> No problem. I, go to the Amazon page and then buy the, uh, but, I'll, but I'll put a link to all of those in the show notes, but go to the Amazon page and, and buy a copy of the book because it was, uh, it was uh, absolutely uh, enjoyable. And, and like I said, I think, you know, I learned so much just about, about life and, and how it works. And, and that's the part that I always sort of avoid gloss over when I'm, when I'm, you know, looking at, 
at various astrobiology papers, which I is clearly counterproductive. So thank you for giving me an education in this. Well, I'm, I'm delighted that you enjoyed the book, uh, Fraser. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, and, uh, and if you do find life, uh, would you let us know? Sure. All right. You'll be the first to know, Fraser. Oh, perfect. You will. Thank you, Wallace. Uh, take care. Okay. Cheers.